Uh, welcome to today's program, Afghanistan Fighting the Taliban. I'm John Walters. I'm Chief Operating Officer at Hudson Institute. Uh, thank you for joining us here at the Stern Policy Center. Uh, next September 11th will mark the 15th anniversary of the attack on America by al-Qaeda from areas controlled by the Taliban. The war against the Taliban and other Islamic extremist groups has lasted almost all of those 15 years, costing U.S., Afghan, and our allies many lives and substantial military and development resources in an effort to stop this threat and to give democracy to the people of Afghanistan. Efforts to find a negotiated settlement have been disappointing, and the Taliban may now be gaining power in the view of some. It's an opportune time for this program. How should we understand the current state of the war in Afghanistan against the Taliban, and what should be the way ahead? We are grateful to be joined by Afghanistan's Ambassador to the United States, Ambassador Moheb, before becoming the Ambassador to the, uh, uh, the United States. He served as uh, Deputy Chief of Staff to the President of Afghanistan and helped to draft and implement bilateral, multilateral agreements, including the U.S.-Afghan partnership. Leading this discussion is our Ambassador Hussein Akani, who is the Hudson, who's Hudson Institute's Senior Fellow and Director of South and Central Asia Studies. Ambassador Akani served as Pakistan's Ambassador to the U.S. from 2008 to 2011 and is widely respected for managing a difficult partnership at a critical time in the global war on terror. I will turn the microphone now over to Ambassador Akani, who will uh, more expertly introduce our topic and introduce all our distinguished speak speakers for today. Please join me in welcoming our guests. Uh, thank you, John, for that very kind introduction. Uh, it's a pleasure hosting Ambassador Mohib here. Uh, uh, ambassador Hamdullah Mohib has been uh, Afghanistan's ambassador since last year here in the United States. Uh, he is a, a respected Afghan public servant, having worked on the U.S.-Afghan relations for a while, as well as on a number of other things, including realizing self-reliance reform strategy in Afghanistan, which for those who have been critical of uh, the U.S. role in Afghanistan is very important that Afghanistan has made an effort to uh, increase self-reliance, but obviously it has uh, serious challenges, and we will be discussing those challenges today. Uh, as a partner in our discussion is Dr. Muhammad Taqi, a fellow Pakistani citizen uh, and uh, a, a medical doctor by training. Uh, a well-known columnist and somebody who has had an active role in Pashtun and nationalist uh, causes in Pakistan. Um, let me begin by inviting uh, Ambassador Mohib to make his introductory remarks about where you see Afghanistan at the present juncture. Uh, how far do you see the challenge of the Taliban? Why do you feel that the Afghan uh, peace process, which President Obama invested heavily in, for the last several years has not moved forward? And uh, why do we hear about the Taliban's resurgence, which does not always completely manifest itself, because obviously Afghanistan remains by and large secure, but you're not able to defeat the Taliban, and nor are you uh, in a position where people will say the Taliban are winning tomorrow. So it's a, it's a kind of a stalemate. Why does that stalemate exist? Please, Ambassador Mike.
asked Mr. John Walters. But Mr. Walters, Ambassador Akani, uh, Dr. Thaki, colleagues from the diplomatic corps, think tanks, government officials, journalists, um, and friends of Afghanistan, good afternoon. In the outset, let me begin by offering my sincere condolences to the American people, to the families of the victims, the community in Florida, and the U.S. government on these tragic events of yesterday morning in Orlando. We condemn this act of terror and hate in the strongest terms. Terrorists have only one goal, the use of violence to divide people. It's time to stand united and in solidarity against terrorism. As a people who have suffered from terrorism for many years and continue to be one of the most frequent victims of terrorist attacks, we share the grief of the American people. This comes at a time during the month of Ramadan, a month of compassion and generosity, a month that puts our blessed lives in perspective, a month that increases our understanding of the difficulties of those who are less fortunate than us. A month that encourages to reevaluate our behavior toward other people, to be compassionate and generous. I want to thank the Hudson Institute and Ambassador Hakani for inviting me here today to speak about what is for my government a most urgent priority, the security and stabilization of Afghanistan. This is not just our priority. Afghanistan is fortunate to have many regional and Western partners who understand how critical, how critically important it is for Afghans to live in peace and to be able to focus their full attention on recovering from years of war so we can develop into a stable, self-reliant, opportunity-rich country. As so many of our fellow South Asian neighbors have already done so successfully. In 2014, as NATO's ISAF mission was ending, our very young Afghan military was thrust into a leading role in fighting our common enemies. Since then, our forces have become stronger, more disciplined, and more capable. It is said that although the Afghan military was 12 years old in 2015, this year it's 20 years old. We've made eight years of progress in less than 12 months. We're now fighting an enemy, shall, shall I say, enemies that are more brutal, where once we only faced the Taliban, we're now attacked by stateless terrorists whose agenda threatens not just Afghanistan, but regional and, and the world security. Of course, I'm talking about Daesh and Al-Qaeda and other regional terrorist groups that seek to destabilize our region. The former, which operates out of the country's east, has murdered some 600 Afghans in the last six months, mostly young people who refused to join its brutal ranks. The latter, pledged by to the Taliban, a term which means total loyalty, and it receives cover and cooperation in return for its support. If it wasn't clear before, it should be clear to the world by now. 
Afghan soldiers and civilians are dying in a war that has been imposed on us, a war that was not chosen by us, a war that was not caused by us. Here in America, I often hear that Afghanistan feels like a yesterday's war. But for the Afghan soldiers standing guard at the gates of the cities, threatened by the enemies of peace, that war is very much still happening. For Afghan civilians, children, women, killed by brutal suicide attacks, that war is still very much happening. Afghanistan is a small country with big potential and big ambitions. And we have a government with the knowledge, expertise, and vision to change our destiny. But in instead of spending all our budget and energy on rebuilding infrastructure, creating new avenues for economic development, or investing in our huge youth population, we are spending a sizable amount of, on military operations to fight off attacks from enemies largely supported by and made up of foreign militants. This is not just Afghanistan's fight. This is the world's fight. Afghanistan and its neighbors are at the forefront of this fight. It is a regional problem that requires a regional response. And that is why we have been working with our neighbors and regional partners to build a consensus on fighting our common enemy, that is terrorism. We've been working with our neighbors to end the distinction between good and bad terrorists, as if there is such a thing as a good terrorist. We have been working with our neighbors to play a positive and constructive role in Afghanistan. The Afghans are a strong, resilient, and proud people, a people that despite decades of war have not been beaten we are still working on rebuilding our country, undeterred by the challenges. Those who wish to gain influence in Afghanistan must by now understand that investing in our development, in rebuilding our infrastructure, and in contributing to peace and stability can generate enough goodwill in Afghanistan towards them to last a thousand years. Regional stability and peace is increasingly every nation's need more than ever before and the stability begins with Afghanistan. We want and pursue peace with elements of Taliban who have legitimate political grievances that can be worked out at a negotiation table. But we also have the job of protecting our people and country from violence that we have endured for far too long. Attacks like the one in Kabul on April 19 that murdered 70 people and wounded 400. To us, Afghan lives matter. And we mourn every life lost to this imposed war. We're proud of the Afghan security forces who have done a remarkable job so far. We also welcome the news that President Obama has expanded the mandate of US forces in Afghanistan. American troops can now provide more combat support to the Afghan forces on the battlefield with close air support in offensive battles against the Taliban. That's in addition to the invaluable training, assistance, and intelligence support that they have been providing already. This development should strike fear in the hearts of the enemies of Afghanistan. 
who have already suffered multiple defeats at the hands of the Afghan National and Defense Security Forces this year's, during this year's spring fighting season. Of course, our forces have also killed or arrested more than 36 senior Taliban leaders that in the last 18 months, almost half of them were shadow provincial governors. The Afghan National Defense and Security Forces have new technical and military capabilities, including air force and helicopters. They have proven themselves to be formidable on the field of battle. Coordination has greatly improved and logistical supply chain has also improved. Recently, the Taliban tried to retake Kunduz city, but were defeated before they could even launch an attack. These recent security-related developments, the increased capacity of, Af of Afghan forces and their success in the spring's fighting season, the decision by the White House to expand the mandate of American troops, the attacks in Kabul and what they revealed about the operations of the enemy, and the death of Mullah Mansour, who was an impediment to peace, have created an opportunity for Afghanistan and its allies to turn the security tide in our favor. But there are also positive regional developments outside the security sector that are helping stabilize Afghanistan. Afghanistan has just signed the Chabahar tripartite agreement with India and Iran, creating a new transit corridor for the first time that gives us access to deep water. It gives us alternative transit route. It gives us an increased connectivity to the world. This is massively important for our ability to export our goods and import what we need to advance our economic development. Afghanistan also just inaugurated the Afghanistan, the Afghan-India Friendship Dam, a project 40 years in the making that epitomizes the deepening relationship between Afghanistan and India. These and other major regional development projects such as the Turkmenistan, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India gas pipeline, uh, the Central Asia, South Asia power transmission line, more commonly known as CASA 1000, are proof that Afghanistan is developing into a hub of regional cooperation and can be an engine for economic pr progress across the region. To conclude, Afghanistan has a clear message to the Taliban, standing against people's demand of peace will take you nowhere. And the only way left for you is to accept and conform to the desires of the Afghan people. To the international community, Afghanistan is a reliable partner and the best way to control terrorism is to put more pressure on those who use terrorism for political gains. And finally, a clear message to our neighbors, you should work with us and be part of the future we are striving so hard to realize. Let's all work to create a prosperous region by helping Afghanistan return to its natural geographic and economic role as a hub of regional cooperation, not a ground for conflict and violence. If we do that, everyone stands to benefit. Thank you. Thanks, Thank you, uh, Ambassador Mohit. Uh, so uh, the advantage of being an ex-ambassador is that you can actually, the ex really enhances your capability of unpacking diplomatic language. And basically, I heard you talk about 
the country to Afghanistan's east, and I was visualizing the map. And it was very clear to me that you were not talking about Myanmar. Uh, second, second, you very clearly uh, said, uh, uh, although not in so many words, that the administration's decision now, the US administration's decisions, to keep American troops for a little while longer in Afghanistan to assist the Afghan uh, national forces is a good idea. Uh, the thing, third thing I noticed was that while you are very confident about the fact that the Afghan security forces have enhanced their ability, it's still always a question that a, a second lieutenant takes several years, at least three decades, to become a general. And so even though the Afghan army has been there for 12 years and in the last one year has made the progress of eight years, it will still need some more years before it can have all levels of officers, cadres, and the esprit de corps prepared to be able to compete with the neighbor to the east, whose army, of course, uh, has existed since 1857, uh, when the British uh, fully took over uh, the subcontinent. Uh, the fourth point that I discerned you were you talking about was that you are still concerned about those who use terrorism for political gains and make distinctions between good terrorists and bad terrorists. And the next point you made was that you're willing to work with all your neighbors, and in that you include uh, neighbors other than the country to the east. So, so my question to start the discussion before we come to Dr. Taki and his comments, since he uh, is from the country to the east, um, my question is, whatever happened to the last several years of efforts of working closely with Pakistan uh, in trying to foster a peace process with the Taliban. And while you said that Mullah Mansoor, who was eliminated recently in, a Pakistan, in, in, in Pakistan and not in the tribal areas of Pakistan, but in the settled areas of Pakistan, uh, traveling between two posts and positions, which I believe are not very far from uh, Pakistani military uh, uh, cantonments, um, you consider him an impediment to peace. The U.S. considered him an impediment to peace. Uh, but the Pakistani government, even today, has said that uh, his elimination is actually going to set the peace process backward. Do you think the peace process was in an advanced state and has been set back? Or did President Obama decide to eliminate Mullah Mansoor only because the peace process just was not moving forward and a message had to be given to the Taliban as well as to the country to the east? that they cannot provide safe havens to the Taliban. Oh. Ambassador, thank you. I, I, <clears throat> you can interpret as you wish. <laughs> uh, I said what I said. Uh, but uh, let me um, um, say that uh, we, the Afghan people, uh, since I remember from my age, from, the, from, from a time where I could make sense of things, I remember the Afghan people praying for peace at every Friday prayer, at every Eid, at every, even at weddings and funerals, every opportunity we had where we were collectively together, we prayed for peace and stability in, in Afghanistan. It's the desire of our people and, and, and it's something that the Afghan government is extremely committed to. We want to make peace, but we've got to make peace with a willing partner. We've got to make peace with people who want peace. And, and we're making every effort to, make, to keep those doors open. But we've got to, like I said, protect our population, our people, and our, our territorial integrity while in that process. We're, 
Um, we have not closed the doors. Uh, we have a we had a quadrilateral process that, um, as you are aware, Afghanistan, Pakistan, China, and the United States, where we had a clear roadmap um, on on how to proceed with the peace process and everybody's responsibilities on how on, on what they needed to do. And there was a clear line about where what we do with those who want to do peace and how to approach, and those who don't, the irreconcilable. Those um, uh, those promises that were made on, on paper were, were not fulfilled. Um, we hope that going forward that, that there would be a shift in that policy, uh, that, that cooperation, um, because as we saw here in the United States, terrorism has no boundaries. It, it happens everywhere, and terrorists do not recognize those boundaries and those loyalties. Their loyalty is only to terrorism. Um, it's in the interest of, um, of Afghanistan, Pakistan, and our neighbors, immediate neighbors, all of us together, um, to have peace and stability in the country. It will increase the, um, the, the region's um, economic development, or, or at least put it on a faster pace, um, it will also give the, the, the region an opportunity to, to take a break, a breathe, breathing space. Um, so, yeah. okay. well, uh, I understand uh, what you mean, uh, Ambassador Mahib. Uh, I am one of those Pakistanis who has joined our Afghan brothers in praying for peace and working for it uh, for a long time too, and uh, and somehow it just hasn't happened, unfortunately. Uh, the Pakistani perspective seems to be uh, that you know we 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 had Afghans as our uh, guests for many many years, and yet I think that the Pakistani establishment played a very uh, its cards very poorly. That today Afghans, instead of uh, having become much closer friends because of those years of hospitality in which many Afghans lived in Pakistan, uh, there is uh, there is a state of uh, unease between the two countries, and this peace process hasn't moved forward. I will ask Dr. Mohammad Taqi to get into the discussion now. Uh, doctor, we need a, a since uh, the current ambassador of Afghanistan and the former ambassador of Pakistan were unable to say it clearly, why don't I ask you to diagnose and, 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 and describe the ailment much more candidly so that the, the discussion can move forward. Because the people who have been affected most by this standoff, and it, we must remember, I mean, Americans have a very interesting relationship with history. Americans don't always uh, sort of focus on history. America is the only country where when you say so-and-so is history, what you really mean is so-and-so is irrelevant. Uh, but the truth is that history matters. And the situation where we find ourselves in, in Afghanistan uh, today uh, has a deep background. Uh, going back all the way to the 80s when the war against the Soviets was fought with the United States, the Afghan people, and the Pakistani government all together. After that, interests diverged. Pakistan supported the Taliban. First, it supported extremist groups in Afghanistan. Then it supported the Taliban. Uh, then 9-11 happened and America got interested again. And so the, it's, it's a continuum because of which it seems that Pakistan and Afghanistan are conjoined twins who are having tremendous difficulty with one 
being responsible for creating the difficulty and the other feeling the difficulty, even though the pain is felt by both. Pakistan has had many, many victims of terrorism itself as a result. Uh, and I have already invited the Pakistani ambassador to come uh, to Hudson as well so that we can have a Pakistani, official Pakistani perspective since mine is a private Pakistani perspective which does not always gel with the official one. So Dr. Taki, let's hear from you as to what do you see as the reason for this uh, long standoff and how was it that Mullah Mansoor was found uh, in the Pakistani province of Balochistan uh, eliminated there and then our Afghan friends and the Americans both think he was an impediment to peace and therefore had to be eliminated and Pakistani officials insist that he was his elimination is going to set back the peace process so let's hear it from you thank you very much but there may go and get ambassador said shaf shaf kardo mashaf talu mekanam he said ah ah and I'll say the apple right so uh, let's talk uh, what is happening and uh, what lies ahead beyond Mullah Mansoor. Uh, but first things first, I'm from Florida, and uh, we had a really uh, major disaster uh, in Florida, a major tragedy yesterday. Uh, and we don't realize that terrorism uh, and radicalization is much closer to us than we really think. Uh, this was uh, Orlando just last week. I was there for a football game. This is how you associate Orlando fun, games, Disneyland, Disney Park, and then suddenly we got to a situation where we have 50-plus uh, uh, deaths um, and a community destroyed, ravaged in the middle of Florida. Uh, it is a crisis of identity and crisis of strategy, uh, radical Islam uh, and Islamization, which have uh, served as a catalyst for social, cultural, political grievances, uh, which have been simmering. But unfortunately, uh, the uh, radical Islam, through its uh, terrorist means, has become an inspiration, not necessarily an organizational tool, but an inspiration for lone wolves and uh, nut jobs and crazies around the world. So the danger is uh, closer to home, much closer to home than we think. And uh, where do the intellectual uh, roots of this uh, terror have existed um, over the years? Uh, we talk about. Uh, there's war in Afghanistan, there is Taliban terror in Afghanistan, the Haqqani network is in Afghanistan. Yes, uh, they have operated there. But I point you to uh, this facility here uh, on the map. Let me have the laser pointer, if I may, just real quick. Is there a laser pointer? It doesn't work great. Okay, all right, I can just pinpoint here, right here. This is Akola Khatak. It is off of the GT Road. This is where the Hakania Madrasa is. Hakania Madrasa is a seminary which was started back in the uh, turn of the 20th century, and then uh, it took its root, and it's a sprawling complex all across the road, about 100,000 students there. Right next to it, this is the regimental artillery center for Pakistan Army. Here is the special services group, uh, the uh, commando uh, elite force regimental headquarter in Chirat. Right here behind there, uh, in Mardan is the Punjab uh, Regiment's regimental headquarter. This is where I'm from, Peshawar, which is the home of the 11th Corps of Pakistan Army. Here is the Kamra Heavy, uh, um, the aeronautical complex, uh, which is the hub of Pakistan Air Force's hardware and engineering, and some uh, home to nuclear uh, assets, allegedly. Not too far, about an hour's drive from Rawalpindi, this is the Haqqani Madrasa. 
you know, there's philology of war. Where do these terms come from? The madrasa was named after Malvi Abdul Haq, and from there it became Haqqaniya. The graduates of this madrasa have become the Haqqanis. Jalaluddin Haqqani was educated in this madrasa in 1970, and he participated in the election campaign of Maulana Abdul Haq in the 1970 Pakistani elections. Uh, so this is just to give you a quick perspective of where the intellectual hub of those things lie. You have heard of Benori Madrasa in uh, uh, Karachi. You have heard of uh, Panjpir Madrasa not too far from here. Uh, these are the three top madrasas producing a lot of uh, uh, radicalization. Can anyone in the audience or anywhere else name three Afghan madrasas who have actually produced anyone of this sort? Anyone? Three madrasas. No, there is none. So uh, off the bat, there is, there is a problem. Where is the intellectual hub and uh, where are the tentacles? So we'll talk about it a little bit more. Uh, this is essentially, we're talking about a jihadist ecosystem uh, that has existed uh, for the last uh, 69 years, more or less. Pakistan started off the bat with a jihadist exercise in Kashmir. And to support that, uh, an elaborate network of uh, radicalization, madrasa system, and uh, religious political parties was developed. Uh, we'll get to it towards the end also. Where uh, I asked you, any, any Afghan madrasa, you can't tell, but there is one Afghan madrasa which actually operates not in Afghanistan. It operated right here. In 1974, Jalaluddin Haqqani established in Dandidra Pakhel, uh, just across the canal in uh, Miram Shah Waziristan, this was the madrasa called Mambatul Uloom, which means uh, the fountainhead of knowledge. Uh, well, lo and behold, the madrasa's uh, uh, party organ is called Fountainhead of Jihad, uh, Mambatul Jihad, and that's what the Haqqani network has uh, put their uh, claim to fame with. And this is not too far from the regional headquarter of the 11th Corps. So once again, even the Afghan radicals actually set up shop to the east of Duran line, uh, to that country east of Duran uh, that we have been talking about. But what do we actually do? The day after uh, Mullah Akhtar Mansur is eliminated, uh, we expected that there would be some sort of a, a cogent, candid response from Pakistani leadership. Uh, unfortunately, we did not hear that. Uh, for the first couple of days, there were uh, uh, mumbling, some uh, rambling thoughts coming out of uh, both the civilian and the military side on the Pakistan. And then we came up with this really uh, disingenuous uh, thought where uh, the Pakistani Army High Command is asking the U.S. to bomb TTP hideouts inside Afghanistan. That it really takes a certain audacity uh, to say that someone, an Afghan national who Pakistan had harbored, nurtured, raised, gets killed in Noshki, which is a settled area of Balochistan, and then you turn around and you ask the U.S. to bomb someone who escaped some of your operations, who was trained and educated in the madrasa called Panjpir Madrasa, which is run by the brother of a retired army major. It's a well-known madrasa. It is a Salafi madrasa in uh, the Sowabi region. Uh, it's, it's really ironic that uh, instead of an introspect, introspection that would be coming out of Pakistan, uh, we hear this. And apparently, you know, the recent, very recent history was uh, lost on the uh, military high command. The U.S. actually has taken out the tariq taliban uh, Pakistan leadership right from get-go. Uh, Naik Mohammad Wazir was taken out in 2004. 
Bethullah Masood, their next Amir in 2009, Hakimullah Masood in 2013, the teacher of the suicide bombers, Kari Hussain Masood in 2010, and I'm not naming the lower rank. This is the top leadership that was wiped out by the U.S. So it really takes a certain gall to turn around and say, hey, you need to take out Mullah Fazlullah. And I, I'm pretty confident that at some point Mullah Fazlullah will be taken out, but where would it happen and what time would it happen? We don't know, but what, one thing I can certainly forecast is that despite all that, you would not see a specific action going after the Afghan Taliban who are uh, stationed in Pakistan and their very lethal uh, Haqqani network affiliate. Uh, what happened after uh, Mullah Mansoor was taken out? There was a, a congregation, uh, again, um, in, in Quetta, the Pakistani uh, uh, armed forces spokesperson um, gleefully tweeted that the chief of army staff was at the command and staff college in Quetta. Command and staff college is one of the elite uh, army uh, institutions that any uh, officer, lieutenant colonel and above has to go through for further promotions and so on. Uh, incidentally, the headline is, uh, their motto is in Farsi. Um, it says, Pir uh, Biamos, Saadi's verse. Uh, it's there and just the Next day, you know, the comment made there was that they're going to confront a global phenomenon of terrorism and extremism. Well, uh, it sounds really uh, great and attractive, but what was transpiring when on 21st uh, May, uh, Mullah Mansoor was taken out for four days, the Taliban shura went on uh, within a stone's throw of the command and staff college where the Pakistani army chief stood and he said that we are going to fight the global terrorism. And in the end, they settled on uh, the former uh, Taliban uh, justice guy, a supposed religious scholar, Mullah Habatullah, uh, whose name translates into the fear of God or something of those lines. Uh, so where exactly was this happening? This was happening in Kuchlak. Incidentally, I've seen that little town. It's uh, our orchards, uh, fruit orchards, uh, which dot a very dusty terrain. Uh, by a motorbike, it's about 45 minutes drive uh, out of Quetta. So on, on here, you move ahead to the one more. This is Kuchlag right here. Here is Quetta. Uh, those of you, anyone from Quetta here? Uh, if not, they would be uh, able to tell. This is Command and Staff College right here. This is Quetta Cantonment, the home of the 12th Corps of Pakistani Army and the Southern Command of Pakistani Army. Here is the all-powerful Frontier Corps headquarters. There is an Army Selections and Troop, uh, Recruitment Center that's on Zarhoon Road, Quetta. This is the uh, Pakistan Air Force uh, flying base, Samugli. It is a very active base. All of this within one hour of Kochlak where all this was happening. Uh, you know, it raises a question, it raises a flag. And it raises a very red flag. Uh, where did we see this before? We saw that in Osama bin Laden's case, uh, who was discovered uh, about a mile away from the Pakistan's uh, counterpart of West Point, if it actually could be called that, the Pakistan Military Academy in Kakul. Uh, the point is that when it is such a garrison town in Quetta, such a uh, well-manned military air force regional ISI directorate, uh, is it possible for people to get in and out just like that? Uh, 
sure as hell journalists cannot, especially foreign journalists cannot, uh, here in this um, uh, audience and on this podium, uh, Carlotta Gall, uh, Gall of New York Times, she sat here and she acknowledged that she was beaten up when covering Quetta, physically beaten up. Uh, journalists have been... Try and make it more concise, Dr. Taki, because we want to open it up sure. for discussion later. Okay, we'll go to... The question that Pakistan needs to answer and the rest of the world needs to ask, what is the nature of the Taliban uh, war? An ambassador alluded to it, uh, the Kabul attack uh, was terrorism pure and simple in its most brutal and ruthless form. 71 uh, people, officers, trainees, and most of the people who were killed were innocent. What happened? The Taliban emirate proper, Zabiullah Mujahid, actually accepted the responsibility for that attack. And then you have the Taliban emirate sitting in a settled area of Pakistan. The emir is there, Mullah Mansour's was. So the question arises, if the terror attacks are happening inside Afghanistan and the emir is sitting in Pakistan, what exactly is Pakistan's role in that? Uh, it is not simply providing food and shelter and health facilities. Uh, there has to be some responsibility for those actions. It is not an ordinary war. People have conducted guerrilla wars historically, but when it takes uh, war crimes as uh, Afghan civilians are being abducted uh, from uh, roadways and then some of them slaughtered and their heads dispatched back to their families, this is not ordinary war. This is not a national resistance movement. Uh, this is terror, pure and simple. So there is a question about that. And then uh, a couple of questions arise about uh, when the Pakistan is pushed, uh, we hear that, well, we have leverage over them, but we don't have that kind of leverage over. There is sanctuary, there is money, logistics, training, weapons. These people, Afghanistan is a landlocked country. People are not para-dropping uh, paraphernalia and, and uh, war machinery direct to the Taliban. It is coming from somewhere, and it is coming from some land route. So that, that really uh, raises a big question about the leverage. And one thing I want, want to say is that uh, they say there will be a blowback. Yes, there potentially could be a blowback. But any time Pakistan has arrested a Taliban, Afghan Taliban leader has been when they were going out and actually trying to make overtures to the Kabul government, be it uh, Agajan Motasim, be it Tayyabaga, be it uh, the most famous uh, cases of Mullah Brother, he was arrested. So much so that Mullah Brother's child was arrested to uh, induce them. Taliban leaders who try to make peace, their families are arrested or threatened with arrest, and they are told to go out and fight. That's, that's a pretty serious issue that, on one hand, the Pakistani uh, government talks about that its inability to induce Taliban, and on the other hand, it is inducing Taliban to fight by using these coercive means. Uh, the blowback potentially could come uh, in the form of the Taliban, um, um, their relationships with the domestic jihadis. But again, the, the domestic jihadis, like the Haqqani uh, Madrasa that I showed, uh, they have been nurtured and raised under the wing of the Pakistani security establishment for decades. Uh, the Madrasa principal was made a Pakistani senator when he did not have enough votes or enough, enough seats in the provincial government to actually uh, make anything. So. The blowback could also be contained if it is anticipated. Uh, if there was a will, there would have been a way. Uh, I'll just stop here, and then we can discuss that uh, in the question and answer. Thank, Thank you. you very much, Dr. Tati. Um, before I open uh, the floor to uh, questions and discussions, let me ask a couple of questions myself. Uh, my first question uh, to Ambassador Mohib. Uh, 
Uh, it's clear. I mean, you may not want to state it very clearly. Dr. Taqi was a little, uh, very, uh, shall we say, very candid, uh, that there is a perception that maybe Pakistan uh, holds back the peace process. Uh, that is the reason why the American side decided that it was going to up the ante by eliminating Mullah Mansoor, whom Pakistan was presenting as the person who could have uh, made peace. Um, what do you think is Pakistan's interest in doing so? Uh, it's been many, many years now, and uh, Pakistan has been suffering blowback as well. Why do you think Pakistan has not yet decided that the Afghan Taliban are as much Pakistan's enemies as they are Afghanistan's enemies? From a government perspective, we, we did say it and we did reach out to Pakistan. If you remember, our president made at, um, at a huge political cost to himself um, tremendous strides towards Pakistan, uh, reached out his hand to, 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 to end what he called the undeclared hostility towards Afghanistan. We tried to make those efforts, and we're in, in, in one way, we're also encouraged by some of the, the, the discussion amongst the Pakistanis that includes the both of you who are, who are, who are highlighting where the, the flaws in, the, in the, the policy there are and, are and want to bring it to the right path. That's, a, that's an encouragement to us. Um, and so that effort was already made. Uh, and for, for, from my personal opinion on what perhaps is happening is that the Pakistan needs to update its policy. I think it's, it may have been stuck in, a, in, the, in, the, in the past. It's, um, it's 2016 now, different, uh, different time and era from the 1970s, and perhaps some of the policies are still stuck in, in that era. Basically, the notion of strategic depth. Dr. Taki, do you have anything to add, but briefly? Uh, quickly, uh, I recently heard uh, a former uh, director of uh, the Pakistani uh, Intelligence Services, ISI General, Lieutenant General, Asad Durrani, on a program, and uh, he actually used the word uh, the uh, cost of war and collateral damage for uh, the atrocity that the TTP perpetrated in my city at the Army Public School. 140 kids were slaughtered along with teachers burnt alive. And the general had the nerve to say that it was collateral damage. So it's the cost-benefit ratio that, uh, according well, to... What's the benefit is what I'm asking. I'm not benefit. asking. We understand the cost. Pakistan has had several thousand people dead in terrorism. Afghanistan has had several thousand. What do you think they want? They basically want Afghanistan as the fifth province where they can uh, really uh, do anything that they want, keep India out of it. They want to run the Afghan foreign policy. They would like to have an unstable, unfriendly Afghanistan rather than have a friendly, stable Afghanistan. If you were to draw a matrix where uh, there was three, four possibilities, this is the uh, paradigm that the Pakistanis seem to be working under. And uh, regardless of the blowback that they get in the form of TTP that they did and the jihadist ecosystem that I keep talking about to raise four suicide bombers, you have to actually create a village of jihadis. Not everyone goes out and kills themselves. Uh, there is intellectuals, there is uh, um, so much support structure. But in the end analysis, it is uh, a hegemonistic design that they have over Afghanistan. Somehow it got into their head that a civilization 5,000-year-old, a country 300-year-old, is somehow going to be subdued by a 69-year-old country. Okay. Uh, Ambassador Mahib, uh, do you, in your interaction with American officials as well as American public figures, 
uh, find that there is a better understanding of this reality in Washington, D.C. than it was before? Because I myself have been saying this for about 16 years, uh, three and a half of them as Pakistan's ambassador to the U.S., that the best way for Pakistan to have a friendly government in Kabul is to become friends with the government in Kabul instead of trying to create a government in Kuchlak, in Quetta, uh, near Quetta, or in North Waziristan, and then trying to export it to Afghanistan. Why not make friends with, 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 with those who are already in government in Afghanistan? And to me, it seems uh, you know, a no-brainer, as Americans would call it, uh, but it hasn't been the policy. Has the American side understood it, or is there still that whole sort of thing of, yes, but we have to be even-handed somehow uh, between the fire and the fire brigade? Oh, just to echo your, your point, uh, I think, and, and Dr. Taki's what he said, we don't see what the benefit would have been, you know, the cost analysis, where, where the benefits, more and more Afghans are becoming you know, agitated with, with Pakistan, and there is, that policy is not working. I think even if you go back to what you mentioned, um, learning from history, the British tried two attempts before they learned that force doesn't work. You know, so uh, I think if, if, if Pakistan wanted to have um, you know, a more uh, a, a friendly Afghanistan and a friendly policy, these, these efforts of friendliness would go a long way, these gestures, what I said, what I talked about, the, you know, finding a, you know, a, a friendship of a thousand years, that's, that's what we mean if these were friendly efforts. Um, and, you know, there is also a saying that in a, uh, you can take an Afghan to hell by force, um, sorry, by, by, love. Know, by, by, by love or by asking nicely, but you can't take him to heaven by force. Yeah. <laughs> I think uh, it would be... But, but my question, uh, so what do you say to this whole concern about the India factor or Afghanistan collaborating too closely with India and thereby posing or uh, creating some kind of a threat to Pakistan? Is there, do Afghans really intend to or want to create some kind of or be part of some strategy to encircle Pakistan and make things difficult for Pakistan? Would it be possible if supposing Pakistan stops support for the, uh, for the Afghan Taliban and the Haqqani network and really engages with you uh, in, in all sort of, you know, honesty, uh, do you think then that would end Pakistan's concerns about India? Do they have legitimate concerns? And if their concerns are exaggerated, what have you done to try and allay them? Well, as a country who suffered through war and suffered through a lot um, over the past 40 years, we would not wish it on anyone. And we've made that clear to all our neighbors. Our soil will never be used against any other. As for our bilateral relations... That would include with, Pakistan. That would include Pakistan. Oh, um, and we, we have our bilateral relations with India. We would have our bilateral relations with Pakistan, the one or the other. But you don't share a border with... India and you share a border with Pakistan. So, for example, yesterday there was a bit of a border skirmish near Torham. There is that potential. So you do understand from the Pakistani perspective that there is a little concern about that side, which may not apply to India. But that border skirmish has nothing to do with India. It okay. has nothing to do with any other. That those are our bilateral issues, and those are those are those are the kind of. Con um, problems that we should be resolving diplomatically. Right, bilaterally. Um, bilaterally, yes. And to, to answer your previous question, I, I have in, in my talks, I think there is a better understanding here in the United States about, uh, you know, about what is happening in Afghanistan and where the safe havens are, as you can see. It's, 
I, I'm assuming that, that that was understood, but there are more people talking about it more clearly. So do you foresee a repetition, say, for example, of the kind of action we saw, kinetic action we saw against Mullah Umar, uh, against Mullah Mansur? There wasn't a similar action against Mullah Umar about whom many of us knew, including Dr. Takian, probably myself, and had heard rumors from Pakistan about him being in Pakistan. No such action was taken against him. He was an impediment to peace for many, many years. But finally, against Mullah Mansur, there was action. So should we expect more of that kind of action from the U.S. side? Or, or, or how do you think the U.S. side is looking towards this as we move forward? Well, I can't speak on behalf of the U.S. government. I can't say what their actions would be and whatnot. But on the, from the Afghan perspective, we have been highlighting, and it proved, uh, Malam Mansur's death proved what we have been saying for a long time. And people, not just us, many Pakistanis, in, you know, including yourself, who, are, who have been highlighting where the, the, the sanctuaries were. And, and those people are not just attacking the Afghan civilians. If they are also attacking our international partners, including the U.S. and, and NATO troops. And, and, and they're involved in kidnappings, they're involved in suicide attacks. Um, and um, so they're, they're not just a threat to us, and they, they're threatening um, Afghanistan, our partners, and the region um, from safe havens that are across the, uh, you know, the Duran line. Dr. Taki, my last question to you. There was a slide there that I didn't let you uh, sort of, you know, talk about much, I'd, uh, and, but I did notice it, which was about what can the U.S. do? So what do you see? the U.S. doing in trying to break this uh, sort of uh, uh, stalemate, uh, given that uh, the U.S. has its own interests with Pakistan. Pakistan is a nuclear-armed country, and so therefore the United States does not want a total breach with, the, uh, with, with Pakistan. Uh, the United States is developing a close partnership with India. The United States, uh, under President Obama, has started reaching out to Iran. Uh, so. What options does the U.S. realistically have? First off, I guess as a Pakistani-American citizen, I would ask uh, the U.S. government and uh, the officials that is there any historical precedent where uh, the U.S. time and dime was invested the way it was invested in Pakistan, so many billion dollars a year, and then that money is turned around, handed over to some uh, terrorist group, which goes out and attacks uh, the U.S. interests, U.S. service uh, servicemen and women, and uh, kills them brutally, like uh, the uh, forward base Chapman attack. Uh, has this ever happened in, in any other? I mean, I'm open to uh, be corrected, but I can't think of a historical precedent where a U.S. Uh, supposed ally has actually conducted uh, such duplicitous and lethal policy against the U U.S. personnel. That's something uh, really uh, that... Dr. Taki, Pakistanis have their own litany of complaints against the United sure. States, that the United States has not necessarily been the best of allies. So, so let's keep that sure. part about the U.S. and the Pakistan having complaints against each other. Let's just look at what can realistically be done. I mean, short of the U.S. is invested, the quadrilateral process is still there. The U.S. Is, has invested heavily in trying to uh, arrange talks with the Taliban through the Pakistani effort. The Pakistanis have now kind of turned around and said, well, look, uh, how can you wage war and make peace at the same time? So either you stop, uh, you know, action against the Taliban and their leadership while letting us work on them to talk to bring them to the talk uh, to the negotiating table you obviously uh, share the cynicism of those who say they will never do that all they are doing is biding time so that so that a faith accompli can be presented and i've written that myself so i should be 
should be upfront on that. I've written that in the New York Times. I've written that in the Wall Street Journal. The Taliban, I don't think, are a reconcilable enemy. But the Pakistani government thinks they are reconcilable. And there are people in Washington, D.C. who thought they were reconcilable. Do you think they've changed that? Well, the, the, the people in Washington, D.C., unfortunately, have been about four or five years behind the curve. Uh, that's uh, unfortunate, but that's how it has played out. In 2001, the U.S. goes and uh, topples the Taliban, and then suddenly we, we declare sort of a victory. And then in 2004, 2005, Taliban are regrouping in the very regions that I showed you, and the U.S. is uh, still coming up with some sort of a cogent response to it. In 2008, the U.S. first time formally asked Pakistan to take some sort of an action, but it takes another three years for uh, U.S. Chairman Joint Chief of Staff to actually say that Haqqani Network is the veritable arm of uh, the uh, ISI, and they still could not get the Pakistani army or the Pakistani security establishment to uh, act. In 2010, a request is made or a forceful request is made, and the Pakistani uh, General Kiani says that, well, I don't have enough men and para paraphernalia to actually conduct an operation in North Waziristan, and then suddenly turns around and conducts an operation or exercise Azmi now uh, on the border with India with 50,000 troops. Uh, so, you know, if you can't read this uh, in the city, uh, there is something wrong with, uh, with the perception. You know, the uh, paralysis by analysis uh, has, been, has been going on. Then it takes another four years to wait and see that 2014 Zarbe Azab started. And I heard uh, from this town people giving certificates. Well, they've been going after uh, uh, terrorists of all hue. Show me one specific targeted action against the Haqqani network or Afghan Taliban that was taken as part of the Zarbe Azab. I want to know one name. One name, not more than one. Anyone who was arrested out of the Haqqani network, not one. But you know, but, but Dr. Taki, you know, you know the, 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 the American sort of Scarlett O'Hara principle of American foreign policy making, which is tomorrow is another day. Uh, that's the line from Gone, so, Gone with the Wind, in case people have forgotten the cultural reference. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's always about that. So no, I, I, I take your point. And... Uh, uh, Ambassador Mohib, any uh, comments before I turn to the audience to let them ask questions and make comments? Oh, before you do, I, I did want to, to talk about two things. One was um, um, the refugees. You mentioned that uh, the Pakistanis mentioned that they have. And again, having been a refugee and having had lived that life, I know that no one wants to be. If there is peace in Afghanistan, if this war was to end, those people would return to their homes. There is no better place than home itself. Um, one thing. Go ahead. And, and uh, I, I'll, I'll stop. I, I just want to quickly add, you know, the, uh, the Afghans defeat the uh, Taliban day in and day out on the west of Duran. If they cannot go after the Taliban leadership in Pakistan, that's not a matter of uh, Afghan failure. Uh, that is a success uh, for the people who actually conduct those uh, sanctuaries. And, and that's happening every day. You saw in Kanduz, yes, Kanduz was a debacle, but Kanduz was taken back. But how do you actually tackle something across, uh, well, uh, Durand line is a disputed line, but for practical Actually, it's not a disputed line. You, you, you as a Pashtun nationalist might consider it a disputed line. Oh, we do. Line. Those, of us, those of us who are, uh, who understand international law, and by the way, I've had this conversation with many Afghan uh, officials, Legally, Afghanistan does recognize the Durand line as the international border. The question is that that will obviously be a relatively open border. And, and that openness of that border, which comes from having, I mean, since that Durand line was drawn through the, through the Pashtun heartland by the British in 1893 arbitrarily, 
it does create problems. So nowadays, Pakistan is talking about sealing that border. The border is not going to ever be effectively sealed without sealing tribes away from one another and families and clans. In the end, it will come down to convincing the people in Pakistan that they cannot and should not play the game they have played. Well, and convincing Washington to put a price that Pakistan finds too high to be able to continue to play that. At, at the very least, if you cannot put a price on it, you can at least stop subsidizing it. The gravy train has to stop. Okay. On that note, let's have questions, comments, and answers. Comments, very short. Questions, always have a question mark at the end. Anything that goes too long, I will interrupt. So first question right at the back. Yes, sir. And introduce yourself briefly, please, in the mic. Sure. Um, my name is Najib Afghan. I come from a small city in the south of Afghanistan. And uh, right now, I'm a student at Grove City College, Pennsylvania, um, studying entrepreneurship. Um, so my question, uh, as a victim, war victim, I've seen what goes on out there. Um, and uh, yes, as you guys made it clear, it is an issue between the two countries uh, that the borderline has not really been accepted as um, actual border. So the uh, I think the issue is land that Pakistan doesn't want to give it back to Afghanistan, which once was part of Afghanistan. So that's why we have Taliban. And uh, the role of America is very important here. Um, <clears throat> Now you're coming to the point where I'm about to tell you that you're going on too long. Yes. So either make a question or finish your comment. Given the lobby, lobbying that goes on, that the aid goes to Afghanistan um, to train military police, but in that police we have drug dealers, child molesters. Um, and uh, also the aid that goes in Pakistan, it, and the, it it doesn't seem to help reduce um, training. May I help you frame your question? I think what you're trying to ask is that since the United States aids, the, aids Afghanistan and Pakistan both at the same time, uh, is the United States in effect fueling the conflict? Is that what you're trying to ask? Um, yes. Good. So should not, shouldn't the U.S. here remain non-interventionist and stop the aid and let um, Afghanistan and America and Pakistan solve its own issues. Okay. Anybody brave enough to answer that one? <laughs> uh, I wish we had a U.S. counterpart who could answer to that question. But from where we see it, as a from our perspective, I think um, yes, Afghanistan. While while we're working on our self-reliance strategy, um, uh, we're trying to reduce our um, dependence on aid. Uh, and, and, and we wish that on all the countries next. And I think maybe if some of the spendings on military was spent on, on what they needed for development, there they would be no need for U.S. to su support, um, to provide a military or aid to, to Pakistan. I think if the United States, I, I'll, I'll answer your question in a slightly different way. I'll say that if the United States is helping Afghans or Pakistanis learn how to fish, uh, then they're really helping them. But if they are only continuing to give fish or uh, something else that starts with an F and has a 16 at the end of it every year, uh, then they are not necessarily helping them. 
learn how to fish and not become self-reliant. So, so that should be the guiding principle on aid instead of assuming that aid always keeps getting, getting us leverage and we can, we can arm two sides that have two different perspectives and somehow get a good result at the end. Yes, sir. now working in a large city called Karachi, 20 million people there. And Dr. Daki is an old colleague, and he mentioned these madrasas uh, along the border between Pampishawar to Rawalpindi and all. Karachi has hundreds of these madrasas because I've seen them. My question is very simple. Where is the funding from these madrasas coming from? Pakistan is a dirt poor country, has no education system, no health system, nothing. So a simple question is where is all the money coming from that we are having thousands of madrasas in Pakistan. Okay. Um, I think that might be a two-word answer, but go ahead. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> well, th there's uh, a question of the foreign funding uh, coming from Gulf regions, but a lot of these madrasas actually are homegrown and self-sufficient. You go out on a street in Peshawar or Karachi, for that matter, you would see these little boxes. You have business who are endorsing and supporting these madrasas. And uh, sometimes the business concerns are not necessarily supporting uh, uh, out of the goodness of their heart, but they have been induced to do that. Mario Mabuzahab mentions uh, a case of a Snan construction company supporting a Sipai Sahaba madrasa, and they were made to. There was uh, hours that be, they actually induced them. Uh, and then uh, Malala uh, Yousafzai, for example, mentions in her book that uh, some people, actually women, they brought out their jewelry and they handed it over to Mullah Fazlullah when he was uh, building his complex in Imam Dheri Swat. So, so I think there's enough blame to go all around. Yeah, I think there's basically multiple sources, uh, including business interests that are coerced, uh, including state interests, as well as individuals who think this is an act of piety. Uh, and all of that coming together to create a right royal mess. Um, yes, uh, right here in the middle. The gentleman with the red tie. Oh, thank you, Rohala Osmani from John Hopkins Size. Um, in fact, referring to uh, the question of uh, what would be the, uh, what the U.S. would want from uh, the recent attack to kill uh, Mullah Mansour. I think I'm not representing the U.S. government, but I think with what's happening in the region with the nuclear uh, deal with Iran and the Chabahar port uh, uh, agreement signed with India and with India's recent U.S.-India's relationship and also attack to kill Mullah Mansour, it seems that uh, the U.S. is giving a message to Pakistan to come, come and join the, the force for a stable uh, an integrated region where Pakistan can be part of it, otherwise we can go run after you wherever the safe events are. So my question here is, uh, where is China, what's China's position? Because China is uh, also suffering from uh, terrorist attack and also China is a partner with Pakistan, so perhaps uh, maybe Ambassador Akhani can. Uh, I think I think uh, that one has a simpler answer. China is uh, is a partner of Pakistan, and China has its interests and its concerns. It uh, it 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 acts like the United States does uh, in its own interest. Uh, in this particular instance, since uh, the United States has a much more a multi sort of dimensional relationship with other countries in the region, whereas Pakistan has put all its chips into the uh, sort of you know on in, on 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 the Chinese. Uh, 
uh, uh, bet, bet it all on China. Uh, China does feel an obligation of supporting Pakistan while at the same time trying to change Pakistan's direction. It's not always easy for a foreign country to uh, influence another country into changing its fundamental calculus of what it considers to be its interest. Um, yes, right here. I've there noticed are, certain people. I'll come to you all in a few. Yeah. Hi there. Uh, two quick questions for each of the speakers, uh, Ambassador. Uh, there's been a there's been a lot of talk of uh, internal uh, corruption and domestic instability and warlordism that really pushes people towards Taliban governance because simply because they provide a predictable order. What can the international community and the U.S. and Afghanistan and other allies like India do to prevent that? And uh, Dr. Tahi, you alluded to a lot of Pashtunistan national uh, nationalism in your presentation. There's been um, uh, there's always that question of hyphenization that happened in 2009, AFPAC. And uh, the Taliban brand of extremism, it's known to be a crude mix of Salafism and Pashtunwali. So maybe this is too much of a simplification. I know it's not going to take uh, a short time. Do you think dehyphenization or like distinction between Pashtun nationalism, separating Pashtun nationalism and uh, extremism uh, will help in uh, uh, reducing the overall terrorist climate? Okay. Oh, on um, on corruption, the the Afghan government has taken great strides. We've been tackling corruption at every level, starting with uh, with with the sources of corruption, which was contracts. Most of our ministries were busy um, with, with that rather than their core functions. We took that away and centralized it. The president and the chief executive and core key ministers now. Um, sit together every every week to go through the major contracts of the country. And so far, we have saved $400 million. That, um, when you put it relative context, last year, as part of our new development partnership with the United States, we received uh, sorry, $180 million from the U.S. last year for that support, and we saved 400 And $100 million of that was immediately put back into the economy uh, by providing jobs um, in rural areas. Now, um, so we're taking steps at that level. We're reforming the judiciary. We understand that without a, a government that people can rely on, uh, it would not be able to to get people's loyalty completely. And this is this is a core area that the government is totally focused on. And we would want our international partners to support, which they do, which they do. They are behind the the, the anti-corruption and the reform agenda. Do you want to have a quick uh, Yeah, I, I actually didn't talk a lot about Pashtun nationalism. I just said Duran Line was a disputed issue, which, uh, you know, this is the Afghan perspective and this is the Pashtun national perspective. But I do want to clarify that uh, never uh, conflate uh, Taliban with the Pashtun nationalism of the type that uh, Ambassador referred to. My ba past background, I'm a recovering Pashtunistani, but uh, that, that was a progressive, liberal, secular uh, nationalism. It has nothing to do with the... Uh, decadent and uh, 14th century old uh, Islamism of the Taliban. Taliban do not represent Pashtun. Pashtuns are represented by two uh, large political parties on the east of Durand, and the Afghans are represented by Afghan nationalists like former uh, President Karzai and the uh, incumbent uh, Dr. Ashraf Ghani. Okay, uh, right here. Can, can we get a mic here somehow? Thank you. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to club certain questions to save time, three or four questions together, and then they can all be answered. I'll come to you. Of course. We haven't had. Yeah. 
Great. Doug Brooks with the Afghan American Chamber of Commerce. Uh, my question is on the uh, what's happening with the Taliban. Uh, they've you know taken these blows in terms of their leadership, and there's always been issues of fragmentation within the Taliban uh, since the last uh, Taliban leader was taken out. Have we seen any changes along those lines? And may I add something to it? Is fragmentation of the Taliban better or worse for a peace process? Well, for us, our doors are open to all those who wish to join the process and those who would like to to end the conflict and stop killing the Afghan people, um, fragmented or united doesn't, to us, doesn't really make that much of a difference. For, and what makes a difference is are they willing to join um, and, and be part of the, the democratic process. You know Afghanistan is a democratic, pro, you know, a democratic country. People can participate at different levels if they, have, uh, if they wish to, and they can join that process. So for us, at this point, um, our security forces will be doing a great job at defending and protecting uh, against the threats that we had um, ex um, that we had intelligence and expected this year to to be happening. So um, it's it's difficult to say whether the um, um, the fragmentation has reduced or or is it, from our end we have been being more proactive in in an offensive on defending our um, um, the country and the people. So. Um. Yes, the young woman in the middle. Um, I'm Tamana from Women for Afghan Women. My question is to Mr. Taqi. Um, I have noticed the uh, map and I saw that um, you showed all the madrasas, you pointed out to all the madrasas functioning in, uh, across the border of Afghanistan in, um, in those areas. So we know where they are located and where they are functioning. Uh, what is the role of constitution of uh, Pakistan, and the laws, policies, and regulations in terms of controlling those uh, madrasas? Why they don't investigate and they do not uh, arrest like if they know that they are uh, radicalizing millions of students going to those schools every day? Thank okay. you. Let's, let's have three or four questions together so that then we can have their answers. Yes, there's a question here as well. If it's closer in concept to this, then we'll bring it all. So I think that this uh, issue is not that small that we cannot, I mean, we can... You didn't introduce yourself. Oh, my name is Naseem and I'm from Pakistan. Uh, I think that this issue should also be addressed with a larger perspective because the younger generation, most of them do not know the historical perspective of it. And also, this is not between the two states. It's also we should, I mean, it should be seen in the larger perspective uh, on the international and regional level. And I think that would help. Which issue are you talking about, ma'am? The madrasas? No, the issue of Taliban and okay. Afghanistan and madrasas. It has got its uh, historical perspective. It also has got it, its uh, regional perspective and international perspective. So I mean, I cannot go on and on going back to when PDPA, the, the liberal democratic party came into power and Afghanistan were fighting those people, uh, the PDPA, and everybody was flocking around to like, okay, madrasas are so good, okay, support them. And now the younger generation does not, you know, they cannot have the clue or they do not have the connection with that. So um, this is not a, such a small um, kind of perspective. That okay, so I, I, I understand your point. I think you're referring to the war against the Soviets and how the international community aided the radicalization of the, of, of the Muslims in that region. also, like yeah. now China and its role in okay, the South fine. Asia. We, so we get the point. We get the point. These two gentlemen right here. So, yeah. Keep your questions brief, please. Now we are running up against time. Uh, 
Ambassador Mohib, I would like to ask you, my name Introduce is Ahmar Masti Khan, and I am a journalist, and I have become so many other things after coming to America. So I want to ask you, a free Balochistan is in the best interest of Afghanistan. Why is Kabul silent on it? My second question to you is, Af Afghanistan and the state of Israel face the same mindset. Why have you not recognized Israel and have diplomatic ties with it? Okay, the gentleman right next to you. Good. Thank you. Uh, my name is Michael Hedari. I was for several years the uh, chief of party of USAID project Midas, uh, which is to develop the uh, mining sector strategy and Ambassador Mohib. I worked with uh, Minister Shahrani and many other ministers there. So, uh, And I also worked in Pakistan on uh, World Bank projects. I just want to make a contrast uh, kind of observation and I'll leave it if anyone want to comment on it from a, a sociological and other point of view. Uh, I look at Pakistan for, with all my due respect to all my Pakistani friends, is one of the most, the people of Pakistan are some of the most anti-West, anti-European, anti-American people as a people, okay? Just an observation. And I make a contrast, your country to the West, Iran is one of the most pro-American, believe it or not, people, I'm not talking about the government, let's put the government aside, but the people, pro-American, pro-West countries in the world, and I make a connection uh, based on my experience in, Pak in uh, Afghanistan, a lot of Afghanis are feeling the same way as, as the Iranian, as the Persians, so I'll leave it there. Okay, so we have several little comments, Mother Saz, their origin, uh, why can't Pakistan act against them, that was directed at you, uh, the PDPA and why the whole world at that time thought toppling the PDPA, which was essentially progressive for gender rights, etc., etc., even though it had communist support, and instead of supporting the progressive agenda, uh, the international community all decided that they would support the more, shall we say, a backward agenda of the Taliban and the Mujahideen. So, how much do you think that that that, that what we are suffering for uh, suffering right now is a backlash to that incorrect judgment, uh, a sociological observation, and a comment uh, uh, from uh, the Baluch uh, secessionist or nationalist movement. You want to take? Sure. First, uh, I guess the, the PDPA comment, I don't speak for the PDPA, I wish I did, but it's no more. Uh, the PDPA made mistakes, they made blunders, but the world made bigger blunders to counter the PDPA and to neutralize them. Uh, back then we had a saying uh, from one of the uh, famous Pakistani uh, politicians at the time, they said, you sow uh, a wind and you reap the whirlwind. Uh, I think that's what happened. Uh, the uh, Hikmatyars of the time and Jalaluddin Haqqanis of the time, uh, they were supported, they were supported and armed to the teeth, and uh, we saw some of that. Some, and there is uh, certainly an inertia effect, but there is also an active uh, rekindling that has been going on. I think you're right, it's a, a separate discussion. We should have it another time. I think the lady asked a, a quick question about the Pakistani uh, constitution. Well, when you go into a Pakistani or Afghan household, uh, where do you see the Quran placed? It's somewhere up top, you know, wrapped in a certain thing. Uh, that's sort of what the Pakistani constitution situation is vis-a-vis -vis the uh, Taliban and Kuchlak. Uh, the Pakistani civilian dispensation, and that was one uh, one of my slides, was unfortunately they have uh, either felt crippled or have been crippled by uh, manufactured political unrest one after the other, that they have practically surrendered uh, the foreign policy and the national security policy uh, over to the Pakistani security establishment. They really do not have uh, 
a whole lot of say, and when they do speak, they usually uh, blurt out the brief that has been handed over to them. I really don't expect much from them. One quick uh, corollary to that is that uh, if there is some sort of a, a punitive action or restrictions on aid and military uh, could it hurt the democracy in Pakistan? That is uh, more important to me, and uh, obviously uh, to Mr. Samba. So that, that is something that, that we need to uh, let the Pakistani civilian leadership think for itself, whether they would be able to remain standing on their two own feet uh, if uh, such uh, action was to come. I think they need to think long and hard that they should not uh, or shouldn't be leaving this up to the uh, brass to decide. Several questions for you, and by the yes. way, I, I will make an observation uh, before that on the subject of, the, uh, of, of what happened uh, in fighting the Soviets in Afghanistan. Sure. Um, that war ended in 1989 with the withdrawal of the Soviet Union. Sure. So while, yes, one can reflect on what, and it did bring the, uh, contribute to the bringing down of the Soviet Union and, and bringing down of the communist bloc in, in, in Eastern Europe, I think that sometimes... Uh, responsibility must be taken for steps that were taken in Pakistan, especially after 1989. And so, for example, the jihad in Kashmir, etc., kept it all going. Pakistan has a very young population. The median age is 21. So half the population is below the age of 21. These are people who weren't even born when that war was taking place against the Soviets. So I understand the, the concerns and questions, but I sometimes feel that invoking that war as the reason for what's going on now kind of whitewashes what has happened in between. Uh, and, and there were other factors that, that were at play here. Uh, but go on, uh, 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 Ambassador Mahib, you have several yes. questions that are directed at you, some of which I know you may diplomatically uh, want to just kind of sort of, you know, uh, uh, not necessarily respond to, but I would urge you to respond to every question that has been asked by our audience. Well, I have to say that patience pays off. In the beginning, if you remember, I said I have a couple of points, and one of them was about history and extremism that you had mentioned in jihad, and I think you came back and answered it yourself. So I agree with, uh, with, with the lady here that it's a historical perspective, and we have to look at it, but we have to, we learn from history and move on. We don't stay stuck in it. Um, yes, um, you know, the Mujahideen, they, what I wanted to say was, they, while they may have had extremist elements, they were not extreme. They were, um, uh, by majority, by large majority, freedom fighters wanting to free their country of an invader. But elements that led to it and being stuck in that history is something that we should really get out of. Now, what was done then has been, has been passed. It's been many decades since then. Um, and today, um, it's a, it's a different it's a different Afghanistan it's a different situation it's a different relationship the, all the, uh, the the regional politics and everything has changed so must that part move um, on the um, uh, the question to to Mr. Amar on the um, uh, we don't Afghanistan is embroiled in in our own internal you know, issues so many that we're you know, we we have to deal with. It's not our place at this point to to involve ourselves in whatever we feel, however humanitarian a project may be, or, or it's difficult for us to to get ourselves involved and and to get our resources to address an issue that, while we're still trying to solve and move towards a stable, a peaceful and stable Afghanistan. So um, let's all pray. Um, that uh, Afghanistan becomes stable and peaceful and, and hopefully the whole region, we will pray for you all to, to become, uh, you know, in our neighbors. It's in our interest to have 
peace around us. It's, it's in your interest to have peace in Afghanistan. So uh, at that uh, note of prayer, uh, let us just uh, bring this afternoon to an end. It has been a wonderful uh, discussion. Uh, I would just say that uh, the United States uh, ignores Afghanistan at its peril. Uh, it did. It ignored Afghanistan between 1989 and 2001, and as a result, 9-11 uh, happened. But then the United States and the people who think about these issues in this sit-down also need to look at the big picture, see how we can actually find a solution in which the Taliban can either be forced to the table or be forced off the map. And either one of those solutions would probably be acceptable to all three of us at this, uh, at this podium. So thank you all very much for joining us. We will soon have other events here. Uh, those of you who are not already on the Hudson mailing list and the Hudson South Asia program mailing list, please give your names to the uh, young people here who are uh, working for, with us, and we look forward to staying in touch. Thank you, Ambassador. Thank, Thank you very you. much, Ambassador. Dr. Pecky. Thank you.